This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Designers, stylists, scholars, brand executives, we're coming together to open up the archive of American fashion and celebrate its Black contributions. They weren't used to seeing us walk up and down Fifth Avenue and, you know, Rodeo Drive and go to the Design District in Miami. That's stylist Monica Morrow, and I'm Kimberly Jenkins. The Invisible Seam is a new podcast available now from Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place program and the Fashion and Race Database. Have the water wars returned to Klamath County? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Federal officials announced last month that no one, not the tribes or farmers in the southern Oregon County, will get water from Upper Klamath Lake this year. But the impact goes beyond Oregon's border. Amy Cordalis is an attorney and member of the Yurok tribe in California. Cordalis said the drought is taking a toll on the reservation. The way we manage water in the Klamath particularly, doesn't work. It doesn't work for anyone. We're on the verge of bankruptcy. We're on the verge of collapse. Farmers Grant Knoll and Dan Nielsen bought lands near the lake and are threatening to breach the headgates if the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation does not release water into the canal. Knoll said farmers are hurting. We have families. We have property payments. We got equipment payments. I got fertilizer. I got to pay for electricity. So, we're—I mean, we're—we're we're fragile. You don't get—you don't get a crop. You don't get income for the year. Most people are broke. No one is happy. Up next, reporter Kale Williams breaks down just what is happening in the Klamath Basin. Here's our conversation. Kale Williams, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Kale, I think a lot of Oregonians may have a basic understanding of Klamath and the Klamath water crisis, but that knowledge may not go that deep. Hopefully you could start at the beginning and tell us a little bit, what is the Klamath Project and when was it created? Yeah, well, the the, the real beginnings happened long before the Klamath Project came into being. Uh, this area of the state, South Central Oregon, uh, right above the California border, long before white people arrived in the area, was kind of this vast marshy area. There were a lot of kind of bogs and big shallow lakes, and there were numerous uh, indigenous tribes that lived here, the Klamath the Modoc, the Yahuskin, Paiute, the Karuk, the, the Yurok down in California. Um, and all of them lived here subsisting off the land, hunting, fishing for, you know, fish in the lake, specifically mm-hmm. these two uh, sucker fish that still live there. In 1854, after some conflicts down here, a few of the tribes here were consolidated into what is now known as the Klamath tribes, uh, and that includes the Modoc and the Yahuskin, and signed a treaty with the government basically ceding control of about 22 million acres 
in return for hunting and fishing rights in perpetuity on about 1.5 million acres. And so that sort of set the stage for development of the area. Right around the late 1800s, early 1900s, people coming here to develop farmland began building dikes and levees to drain these vast marshy areas um, to form what is now Upper Klamath Lake, which is one of the largest lakes west of the Rockies, biggest freshwater lake in Oregon, really just this big, vast area of water uh, that you would come upon when you come off the east side of the Cascades driving over from the Willamette Valley. And in, I believe it was 1905, they began irrigating. I uh, set up what is called the Klamath Project, which is a series of gates and canals and levees uh, that feed water from Upper Klamath Lake to various irrigators, farmers who grow, you know, potato and alfalfa and grass seed and mint and all kinds of stuff within the Klamath Basin. And these were all farms that did not exist, you know, before white settlers came to the area? No. The Klamath tribes, as they're known now, were mostly hunting and fishing for their subsistence, as far as I know. Okay. And the so the Upper Klamath Lake, which is this amazing lake that you kind of described, it's also a, a big migratory bird attraction, I guess you can say. There's lots of birds there. And this is kind of also the source of the Klamath River, right? Indeed. The, the headwater. So Klamath Lake is fed uh, by a few rivers above by Crater Lake uh, that are in turn fed by cascade snowmelt for the most part. So when there's little snow, there's little snow melt, there's little inflow into the lake, and that's where your problems start. So dating back more than a century though, Kale, uh, water in this area has been allocated from these canals based on an agreement between the tribes and local government and the federal government? Yes. Uh, starting in 1906, every year without fail, there was some amount of water that was delivered from the lake for use by the tribes and by the farmers. Um, and when I say the tribes, I don't mean just the Klamath tribes uh, that are around the lake up here. That's also tribes farther downriver. I mean, the Klamath River is really interesting. It starts... Yeah up in the high desert of Oregon. And then it, it runs south into California and through these really mountainous regions of far remote rural Northern California before it hits the ocean. Um, so there are multiple tribes that are affected by what goes on up at Upper Klamath Lake. And, and some people have kind of referred to it as a river in reverse because it starts in a mm -hmm. desert and sort of ends in the mountains, which is not what you typically think of when you, when you think of a river. But I should say that, you know, although water has been allocated every year, there has been conflict for a long time um, with various groups claiming rights to the water. There was in Oregon what they call an adjudication process where they tried to decide who has the, the first rights to the water, the senior most water rights. Um, and basically what the state decided was that it was basically on a first come first serve basis. The people who are here first have the senior most water rights and they can make a call for water. And if their call for water is not satisfied by the amount of water that's in the lake, then the next person below them will not get water. And that adjudication process took from the mid seventies until 2013. So not, wow. not a short process. Okay, well, let's we're jumping around in time a bit, but let's go back 20 years. Um, and, and because that's a, a flashpoint in this water saga, I guess, what happened 20 years ago in the Klamath Basin that really took this to the national level? 
Yeah. So that's why I I paused a little bit when you said water had been delivered every year, you know, from the inception of the project till now, because in 2001, there was a severe, severe water shortage and the federal agency that controls the release of water. It's called the Bureau of Reclamation. It's under the umbrella of the Department of Interior said that there was not enough water to release to irrigators. And a bunch of farmers got together. Uh, They staged a protest and using blowtorches and saws and crowbars, they forced open the head gates, which is essentially the faucet that, you know, opens and releases water from Upper Klamath Lake into the irrigation canals. Was that a one-off or did that continue over the last 20 years in terms of that level of activity and, you know, the irrigators getting directly involved like that? No, that, that was a one-off, but it went on for quite a while. Uh, I believe it started in the spring and local law enforcement did not do much to stop the, the farmers from taking control of the headgates. Uh, and I believe that they more or less had control over it for a good amount of time. And eventually federal law enforcement, I believe it was the National Park Service, and perhaps the U.S. Marshals came in and eventually took control. But from what I learned from some local reporters down here who have been here for a long time covering this type of thing, uh, it was really the the events of September 11th, 2001, that took the focus off of what was going on here in Klamath Falls. And that's sort of how it dropped out of the national news cycle. Ah, yeah, that that would do it. Yep. <laughs> All right. So fast forward to today. Um, we're talking on on a afternoon on Thursday, and you're down in in the Klamath area. What's happening today, and why are you down there? So in May, uh, early May, the Bureau of Reclamation said that again, just like in 2001, the inflows to the Upper Klamath Lake were at such a level that there was not enough water to release to irrigators. Um, I talked to some folks from the Klamath tribes, the people with the the senior most water rights down Mm -hmm. here in Klamath Falls. They said they had made a call for water and the Bureau was unable to satisfy that call. Basically, the the reason why the Klamath tribes who live above the the head gates uh, want water is because these two sucker fish that are very important to them culturally, historically, traditionally are endangered. Their fish biologists told me they think there might be as few as 4,000 individual fish left. Wow. And the lake needs to stay at a certain level for them to be able to spawn and grow from juveniles to adults. So if the lake drops below a certain level, water temperatures rise, that's bad for the fish, an endangered species you know, gets closer to extinction. So they called for water, but there was not enough water to satisfy their need, which means everybody down the line of this adjudication process also goes without water. So the Bureau said that they would not be releasing anything. And soon after that, a couple of farmers down here, a man named Grant Knoll and another man named Dan Nielsen, bought mm-hmm. a piece of property directly adjacent to the head gates. You and our colleague Dave Killen um, are down there and I saw the photos and the drone photo. I mean, this is right adjacent to it, right? It's right at the property. There is one chain link fence and about 20 feet of concrete between their property and the head gates themselves. And how much did this land cost these gentlemen? Cost about $30,000. And when you asked, you know, why, why did they want this land? Uh, what did they have to say? Well, Dan, Dan Nielsen played a little coy at first. You know, I said, what made you want to buy this property? He said it was an investment. <laughs> I asked him, you know, what, what, what the investment value was. And I mean, it, it's a, it's a gravel lot. There's, there's no buildings on it, nothing like that. 
um and he said to be close to the enemy and mm. you know just to be sure i said you know the bureau of Re reclamation is who you see as the enemy and he said absolutely so what what do they want well i should note that both dan nielsen and grant knoll were present in 2001 when the headgates were breached mm -hmm. as they tell me that is not what they want to do again they would either like water to be released or to be compensated for the fact that the water has not been released. They feel that they have a right to this water. They believe that the law is on their side and they have uh, initiated a bunch of litigation to try to get courts to agree with them. But you know, they said short of releasing the water that they feel they should be compensated for this water that they have a right to. When you're down in Klamath Falls, Kale, I mean, is it clear to you that, you know, I guess you can't just look at a had a piece of land or you know or a city and, and say oh this is this is a drought but i mean did it feel like we were living in a in a drought down there you know it, it's hard for me to say because i have not spent a ton of time in this part of the state prior um but as like i said before when you drive down 97 out of the cascades you know you you go through the, the lush west side of the cascades with these big green forests you come over Willamette Pass and you drop down into these Ponderosa pine forests that are, you know, trees are a little farther apart. They're not quite as tall. It's a little more brown and yellow than it is green. But then you drop down into the Klamath Basin and there is just this vast lake that stretches, you know, it feels like from horizon to horizon at certain points. You know, obviously you've got, you know, Mount McLaughlin to the to the west and Mount Shasta down south, but it's a, it's a big lake you know, and it, it can be deceiving because it's also very shallow. Like I said at, at the beginning of this, you know, this was all shallow marshland mm -hmm. before the, the land and the watersheds were all kind of divided up. I know you've mentioned that there's not just one indigenous tribe that has a a say here or that has an interest in, in water from the Klamath. When we're talking about um, other tribes, maybe the Yurok down in California, what are their concerns and, and what would they like to see done with the water from Upper Klamath Lake? The Yurok live in uh, an area right at the, the mouth of the Klamath River on the Pacific Ocean. And they have lived there for time immemorial. Uh, I spoke to Amy Cordalis, who is a tribal member, grew up fishing on the reservation down there and went on to become a lawyer and is now counsel for the tribe. You know, the way she tells it, she grew up fishing with her father. She is looking forward to teaching her three children to fish. But over the last five or six years, there have just been drastic reductions to the salmon runs down there. And part of that has to do with water temperature. Hmm. Uh, when there's less water coming down the river, it's shallower. That means that water temperatures go up and these worms form that spread a parasite called uh, C. Shasta. That Shasta is and can be lethal for juvenile and adult salmon, um, specifically coho salmon, which are endangered in the river, uh, which is a big... It's a big source of food for them, um, right. you know, and as she told me, you know, the, the median income on the reservation is something like $11,000. Hmm. Many of the homes there don't have electricity. Uh, there is a lot of poverty on the reservation. And so part of the way they supplement their income, you know, once they've done the fishing that they need to feed their families is by selling the salmon they catch. But they haven't really been able to, to have a commercial fishery on the reservation for the last five or six years. Um, when I talked to Amy, she said that 
the last batch of juvenile salmon they came up with, 97% were infected with this parasite. Wow. And this, um, you know, up here in the Portland metro area, we might think more of a, the Willamette and the Columbia, but I mean, the Klamath River historically has been a, a huge source of, um, well, it, it's got a huge salmon run historically, right? It's been one of the biggest uh, on the West West Coast. It does. Amy and an, another man I talked to who represents commercial salmon fishermen who fish out in the ocean told me that at one point the Klamath River was the third largest, represented the third largest salmon run along the entire West Coast. And now we're left at a point where there haven't been any commercial seasons for, for many years. And and how is that hitting people in the tribe? How, how is that hitting, uh, hitting them emotionally, socially, financially? It's really sad. Uh, when I talked to Amy, she said that there have been, you know, a lot of suicides and suicide attempts on the reservation. I mean, like I said, there are not a lot of economic opportunities there. And so when people are facing that kind of hardship, often they will turn to drugs or alcohol. This is what she told me. And, you know, that will often lead to declines in mental health, depression, and that can sometimes lead to suicide. When I talked to her yesterday, she said that there had been a suicide attempt the night before. That's devastating. The farmers, obviously, this is their livelihood as well. Are they able to grow their crops this year? And if not, I mean, what are they doing? Um, This is in the Klamath Basin. What are they doing to try to recoup what they've lost or what they will lose? Yeah. I mean, Grant and Dan told me that, that, you know, some people are missing payments. Some other people have bought crop insurance. I don't think there's much that can be done. I think that, you know, the experts that I talked to, including economists from Oregon State, have said that, you know, this basin and the water that comes into it is over-allocated, and the system for distributing it is broken. Some possible solutions, and these are long-term solutions, not short-term for this year's crisis, are incentivizing farmers to potentially plant less water-intensive crops, and possibly looking at, you know, the high-value farmland could be supplemented by trading water with low-value farmland, so that, you know, the economic impact of these low water years could be spread around and would not necessarily fall on just specific people. Some people are pumping groundwater, uh, but Mm. there are, you know, problems with that as well, because, you know, when you deplete your aquifer, then it takes longer to recharge. More water that comes in off the cascades is going to go to recharging the groundwater. That means less in Upper Klamath Lake which leaves lake levels lower, which, you know, is going to deny the Klamath people their historic right to harvest these sucker fish that they have historically depended on. So it is a complicated situation, to put it mildly. Listeners and readers will hopefully remember um, the Oregonians investigative series Draining Oregon um, from uh, five or six years ago uh, that looked into this groundwater issue. I'll share a link in the episode notes. Let's take a break and come back and talk a bit more with Kale Williams. Okay, Kale, there's a familiar name that is 
popped up in the Klamath water crisis um, to Oregonians, and that's Ammon Bundy. H- how does he fit into this equation, and why is how is he involved, if, if he's involved at all? Yeah, well, our listeners will probably recognize Ammon Bundy's name from the 2016 Malheur Wildlife Occupation, um, in which, you know, a group of, I don't even remember how many people, but a, a sizable group right. of people took over a national wildlife refuge uh, to dispute uh, the prosecution of two Eastern Oregon farmers for arson after they were attempting to have a controlled burn on their property. Uh, Dan Nielsen and Grant Knoll are friends and confidants of Ammon Bundy. They said that long before this current water crisis started, uh, he had come to town. Dan Nielsen had hosted some meetings with him in his shop, and he is, as they tell it, sympathetic to their cause. I mean, this is... Uh, you know, if you listen to their side of the story, a, a case where the federal government has come in and, as again, as they tell it, infringed on their rights to this water. Um, and so, you know, if you followed Ammon Bundy and his political ideology, that sounds familiar. He is very much against the federal government infringing on anything that he sees as a personal right. Whether Ammon Bundy will ever actually come here or not is remains to be seen. Um, you know, I know that they have talked to him and they tell me that, you know, he is ready to come if they need him, but they have not put the call into him yet to ask him to come, apparently. Uh, hmm. And so it remains to be seen whether he will actually make an appearance down here in Klamath Falls. What happens next? I mean, because you've got this group that owns this land legally and they're sitting you know right there at the at the uh head gates basically i mean is it just kind of a, a wait and see what happens I, or do we have a sense of what might happen from from here on out i mean if you look at history obviously there are a few things that are possible this could go the route uh, of 2001 with you know farmers attempting to breach these head gates themselves there there are a few differences from 2001 in that the bureau of reclamation has installed these big heavy bulkheads at the mm-hmm. gate so it would take more than just a crowbar and a blowtorch uh, to get these things open when I talked to Grant specifically, I asked him that question, you know, what comes next? And they do still have some cases that are pending in court uh, or that are on appeal. And they're trying to get something in front of a judge uh, in a more rapid fashion than, you know, your normal sort of slow moving appeals process. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they're hoping to get something called a declaratory judgment where a judge will come in and, and just kind of decide for them without going through the normal appeals process. Short of that, you know, they say that that breaching the headgates is possible. When I, you know, texted with Dan, you know, I asked him, hey, like, what are you guys thinking? What's going on? And he said, quote, if the court doesn't resolve this, standoff coming. Well, you know, who's to say? And it's interesting, you know, back in 2001, that was the George W. Bush administration. And and now we have obviously a Republican and now we have uh, Joe Biden, a Democrat in office, couple that with with the potential for uh, another Bundy related uh, standoff, and it, it it doesn't take a wild imagination to see things escalate. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't go that route. It, it seems everyone agrees that this whole system <laughs> is broken, right? Yeah, I mean it, it's broken for the conditions that we have now. And conditions are only expected to worsen in terms of how much water there is to be called upon in the Klamath Basin. Like I said, 
the Klamath Basin is fed by Cascade snowpack. I mean, there was a, a, a study out of OSU that came out last year that said by the end of the century, the snowpack in the Cascades is expected to decline by something like 80 or 90 percent hmm. because of climate change and increasingly warm temperatures. So, you know, the the system works decently in really good years. Anything less than a good year, it barely works. And in bad years, it doesn't work at all. And meanwhile, we are left with a system where you have elected officials, um, usually bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats, having to get federal emergency relief for the fishermen and women on the Klamath and uh, for the farmers, too. And that's just kind of what we've left here. Uh, you've got you've got these you've got to depend on on that money coming through because people are hurting on all sides. Yeah, I know that in the the original press release that the Bureau of Reclamation put out when they said there would be no water uh, released this year, that they said there was something like 15 million in aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and Grant Knowles and Dan Nielsen told me that Merkley and Bentz and the the Oregon delegation was hoping to secure another 30 or 40 million to to try to make farmers whole. Yeah. And, and Cliff Bentz, of course, was a state senator and, um, you know, was very influential representing Eastern Oregon and, and where water rights are and water um, uh, and the aquifer issue we talked about is is a key issue that he's he's been um, trying to, to address for years. And then um, down down in the Yurok, Amy, um, you know, th- do they know at this point whether there's going to be another federal um, emergency relief for for the commercial fishermen uh, on the Klamath? She was not clear on that when I talked to her yesterday. Um, I know that there has been in the past, and it seems like if that type of thing was available in other years, it would definitely be available this year because almost everyone I've talked to said this is just about as bad as they've seen it. Well, thanks so much for your reporting on this important issue and for taking time to talk about it. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Kale's story in the episode notes. I also dropped a link to the Oregonian's 2016 series, Draining Oregon. Our former environment reporter Kelly House investigated the hidden issue of farmers tapping the state's underground reservoirs. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the program. And if you value our journalism, the kind that sends Kale Williams and photographer Dave Killen to Klamath Falls for a week, the best way to show it is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.